welcome to Rising. Happy Valentine's Day to all you lovers of the news out there. We certainly, we heart our viewers. I think? like that. I like changing it from a romantic holiday to a weird um, psychosocial love affair between us <laughs> and our audience. Much healthier, to be honest. Agreed. On that kind note, take it away. All right, well, there's no love affair between Nikki Haley <laughs> and Donald Trump. Haley is calling on President Biden to resign and drop out of the 2024 presidential race. She told Fox News during an interv interview this week, quote, I think the Democrat Party knows that, and I think that it is not just in the best interest of their party, it's in the best interest of the country. During a briefing Monday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre confirmed the president will not be taking a cognitive exam as part of his physical this year. Let's watch some of that exchange. Does the White House think that the, the idea of the president taking a cognition test, a cognitive test, as a part of this uh, physical is a legitimate idea, particularly just on the heels of the special counsel report, more polling, as my colleague Selena just mentioned, showing that many American people have concerns about that? Look, I got this question last week as well, and I'm just going to say what the what uh, Dr. O'Connor. It's kind of a uh, what he said to me about a year ago uh, when the report came out last year, uh, obviously on his physical, uh, which is the president proves every day how he operates, how he thinks, right? But by dealing with world leaders, by making really difficult decisions on behalf of the the American people, whether it's domestic, whether it's national security, and so he shows it every day on how he thinks. And Nikki Haley isn't the only 2024 candidate sounding the alarm. During a recent interview, Robert Kennedy Jr. challenged Biden to a debate, saying it's important that he shows up unscripted in front of voters, adding, quote, we have a right to know that our president is actually leading the country and not somebody else. Meanwhile, over on MSNBC, Joanne Reed is calling out special prosecutor Robert Herr. She told viewers this week that Merrick Garland should have stopped Herr's report from coming out because it was clearly intended to politically damage Biden. And yesterday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined in defense of the president. She told CNN's viewers that Donald Trump is the one to be worried about. She said that while Biden has 81 years of age, Trump has 91 indictments. Hmm. Okay. A lot going on there. Okay, first of all, the cognitive test issue. Realistically speaking, I understand that Democrats don't want to be fighting a, a battle on Republican turf. If we live in a world where your opposition party can create new um, standards for what it means to be president, and then you just always you know, uh, uh, bend the knee to those, you're setting a, an odd precedent that I don't know that you want to go down. At the same time, it certainly doesn't bolster people's confidence that his cognitive fitness is there if there is this kind of cursory rejection of the idea of taking a, a cognitive test without any alternative means to demonstrate his ability to act as president efficiently right. for another four years which is when we get into the RFK Jr. story, which is interesting to say, well, obviously, we're not going to make the guy take a cognitive test. This isn't going to be the election where Trump and Biden are on the stage and they both draw a clock and we see <laughs> what the results are. That would be fine. I don't know. <laughs> make, it a, make it a lightning fast trivia round. Why don't they play Jeopardy against each other? Wouldn't that be genuinely? Well, I, I think the issue is that yeah. they just need to have a debate. Yeah. And so I do think that RFK Jr. is right about that. If Democrats 
understandably aren't going to subject themselves to whatever hoop the Republican wants to throw in front of Biden. At the very least, he still has to wrestle with the fact that there is this lack of confidence from the public and a debate, dare I say, an actual primary season could have gone a long way to allay those fears. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you make of people like AOC and Joy Reid, you know, covering for um, for the statements made in the uh, against Biden saying it was wrong, you know, for him to put out this kind of report. Um, look, obviously complaining about the politicized nature of the DOJ is something both parties have engaged in. Republicans have been very mad about feeling like it's all a persecution thing against Donald Trump. And that, of course, calling to mind Comey's famous remarks about Hillary Clinton when he chose not to, when she was not going to be indicted similarly over the um, email etc., and Democrats being thunderously angry that he nevertheless said that there was some wrongdoing there, even though he declined to bring charges. Comey then subsequently became, you know, a hero to uh, to the Democratic side and an enemy of Republicans yeah. for uh, for not getting along with with Donald Trump. But um, but look, my you know my basic thinking is well, first of all, he didn't bring charges and. Often, like I saw someone make this argument, it's rare actually for a, for, a, for, a, for a prosecutor not to bring charges in situations like this. So he might have felt pressured to at least like throw a bone to the other side for it, in that he was but, not going but isn't to. Isn't that the exact kind of politicization that maybe shouldn't be the province of, a, of a prosecutor? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if you did the examination and you didn't find any legal wrongdoing, you don't have to throw a bone to the other side just so they feel good about that outcome. So I do think that there is a legitimate case for her having gone out of his way to include negative information, not just the framing of Biden's mental uh, alleged cognitive decline, but uh, also kind of um, upfronting some uh, information in the report about how there was mishandling and negligence, and he shouldn't have done this, and he shouldn't have done that, even though there was nothing that yeah. rose to the legal level. But I guess if that's his opinion, of, we have the right to hear that. If that's someone who looked into this and, and was his determination, I mean, you can take it or leave it. But, but that's the, whether he has a right to write it isn't really the issue, right? Like, the argument isn't we should throw him into a gulag because he wrote an unflattering sure. report. Well, I don't, I don't know. Is... I didn't hear the rest of Joy Reid's commentary. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't know that Robbie. that was off the table. Right. No, the, the question is whether or not it was appropriate or politicized, and whether we should be increasingly concerned about the growing politicization of our legal system, of our justice system. So I think that's a fair critique. But at the end of the day, getting back to the AOC of it all, that narrow, fair critique of her's posture in that report doesn't excuse what many folks who once supported AOC on the left, who saw her as someone who could get elected and really challenge the Democratic Party establishment from the inside, who had some hope that the system could be reformed without a complete break of the duopoly. All of those hopes have been thoroughly dashed, not just by this, but this is just emblematic of a posture she's been taking for, frankly, years now. She was a woman that many folks knocked doors and got elected because she said things like, in a reasonable world, Joe Biden and I wouldn't be in the same party. And now she's out there stumping for him, basically telling voters to look the other way and don't believe their lying eyes and don't be concerned about the fact that this is a man who, in his speech, trying to shore up public opinion that he was cognitively there, confused the president of Egypt and the president of Mexico. There is a train wreck happening, and instead of taking this opportunity to rally a movement for an alternative president, maybe would be even more—a candidate, rather, who would even be more likely to win and who, more importantly, actually espouses the ideals that she ran and won on, um, that are, frankly, populist 
ideals in the United States of America, things like most Americans wanting a ceasefire, most Americans, including 49 percent of Republicans, wanting Medicare for all, identifying corruption in office, going after Nancy Pelosi for her stock trades. Those are all things that she could be talking about right now in advocacy for another candidate of occupying some of that RFK Jr. lane and claiming it back for the left. Instead, she's stumping for Biden. Yeah, her, her and everyone else, yeah. her and all the other um, ostensibly progressive members of Congress all saying the same thing, despite there being, as you frequently point out, um, uh, more frustration with Biden on on issues that are important to progressives than ever before. There, and there was a, an unhappy marriage to begin with. Yep. And now it's uh, it's gone beyond that. But it's but the specter of Trump supposedly going to unite all of the Democrats to come out and vote against him. But I think we have a lot of questions whether that's how it's actually going to shake out. Yeah. More rising right after this. Biden administration is facing heat from pro-Palestinian activists after reporting indicates Israel will face zero consequences from the White House if it attacks Rafah in southern Gaza. Politico reports that three U.S. officials granted anonymity to detail internal discussions told the outlet that no reprimand plans are in the works, meaning Israeli forces could enter the city and harm civilians without facing any consequences from the U.S. More than half of the enclave's 2.3 million population has fled to Rafah, putting them in clear danger whenever a ground operation moves uh, forward and Israel passes the bombing phase. White House spokesman John Kirby seemed to confirm this during a press conference yesterday. Let's take a look. I, I want to make it clear here. It, it, this is a sovereign nation. They plan their military operations and they conduct their military operations and they make the choices. Um, there, there's not, uh, it, it's not like we give them a homework assignment and they have to then turn in their plan to us for grading. Uh, we have said but that from our perspective, as a friend of Israel and as a supporter of their efforts to defend themselves, uh, we would expect that any plan for going into Rafah would properly account uh, for the now more than million civilians that, uh, that are seeking refuge down there. Biden is facing some pushback in his own party. Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland gave a speech on the floor of the Senate to urge the president to, quote, hold the Netanyahu government accountable and get critical humanitarian assistance into Gaza. Though the community notes under the video noted following the speech, Van Hollen still voted to defund UNRWA and continue military funding to Israel. The Biden administration's reluctance to leverage aid to Israel comes as the country appears to be aggressively blocking Gaza from maintaining a stable food supply. Axios reports that Israeli finance minister is blocking a U.S.-funded flour shipment to Gaza because its recipient is UNRWA. U.S. officials said this is a violation of a commitment Netanyahu personally made to President Biden several weeks ago. And another reason the U.S. leader is frustrated with the Israeli prime minister, who he apparently privately called an a-hole several times. Um, yeah, with, with so with this uh, John Kirby statement, you know, saying it's not a homework assignment, they, you know, they, we're not grading them, they can do what they want. Justin Amash, um, a former uh, member of Congress who's from the Libertarian Party, responded saying, well, then Israel can plan and conduct their military operations without our money and assistance. Like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. You're saying they don't have to listen to us, but well, then why do we have to fund them? Which is obviously is kind of the broader libertarian point and my point in all of this. Um, not so much about telling them what to do, but if we can't tell them what to do, why—they're they're, they're clearly not interested. 
or Netanyahu is not interested in listening to what he doesn't care what Biden thinks about his military plans. He, he doesn't, which makes Biden look weak and makes us look yeah. kind of like suckers, like we are we're 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 uh, supplying this whole effort and it's not being done. Our interests are not being considered, even though it's our money. They don't care. Netanyahu yeah, again doesn't care. I think the analogy, uh, given the kind of uh, protectorate status that the U.S. has over Israel diplomatically and financially, would be to say your kid isn't doing their homework and you as a parent are disclaiming any responsibility for it, or your kid's been truant and you're saying, well, it's not my fault. I don't, I'm not their legs. I can't walk them to school. They're autonomous. They get to decide what they want to do. Well, you're funding the kid. You're the one that's driving the kid to school. You're the one that's overseeing their homework production. Like, you're the one that paid this tuition for them to go to this uh, mm -hmm. private school in this analogy, regardless. So this is this is the situation we're in. And, and the, the rhetoric that is being used by these spokespeople is really incredible. The, the I wish we had record, uh, included some of the reporters' questioning, because without the questioning, you don't have a really good sense of how evasive the answers are. The questions are really sharp, really clear. Journalists are asking things like, look, you've been telling us for months that you need Israel to follow humanitarian law and that you are getting assurances that they will. And then week after week after week, we see atrocities demonstrating that they, in fact, are not. At the same time, you're saying Israel cannot do a ground invasion with, uh, in Rafah. We do not support a ground invasion in Rafah without taking care of uh, civilian interests. They are saying, we're going to do a ground invasion into Rafa. So how are you going to stop—when are we going to stop talking past each other where you say, well, they should be doing this. We don't—we only support it if they do that. Clear in the knowledge that mm -hmm. they haven't been doing that, and they seem to have no plans to do what America is telling them to do. Where is the accountability and here? And it's important to remember for people that historically it was not like this, that there were strings attached to the aid we were giving to many countries, including Israel, going back to— um, to, to the Reagan years and the Clinton years, there was uh, there. You can find you can find Republican officials who are now generally, you know, full-throatedly supportive of Israel. Though there's some dissenting uh, Republicans who are skeptical skeptical of, of continued funding. Same way on the Democratic side, honestly, party broadly supportive. Some, but increasingly some pushback um, of U.S. government officials saying, uh, speaking out against, like strongly speaking out against expansion into the West Bank and other things of that nature. Now it's like they don't, they're just not listening, but we're still funding it. Yeah, and Biden, I think there was some pressure. He, remember he um, put sanctions on four individual humans in the West Bank when hundreds of Palestinians have been killed by settler violence since this conflict started. Mind you, this is in the West Bank, not in Gaza. This is not a fight up to hunt down Hamas. This is settler violence. Um, Israelis who have been, in many cases, armed by the state, doing vigilante justice against the uh, uh, Palestinian population there. And that all, all that Biden has been able to muster so far is this cursory sanction of four individuals. Now, at the same time that you have Pal um, uh, Israeli government officials attending a settler conference explicitly talking about the prospect of settling Gaza, within gi giant maps of Gaza, with new Israeli city names attached to the locations of Palestinian cities and mm -hmm. towns, and what is a clear indication of a plan to ethnically cleanse the area permanently and not allow people to resettle. There was a really amazing exchange between a reporter and Matt Miller, one of the other State Department spokespersons, where she asked an incredibly well-formulated question about accountability. And she said, okay, I hear what you're saying. 
Israel should do this. America wants Israel to do that. But realistically speaking, we have examples. We know what happened with the case of American Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, how there was no accountability for her death, how Israel lied about their role in her death, claimed that they did not kill her, then claimed that it was an accident, and then finally had to acknowledge what had happened. But there was never any relationship change between the uh, U.S. and Israel. There was no, there were no consequences for, for Israel. So how can we expect there to be anything different going forward? We see that there is no explanation, there's no justification provided for Israel doing things like destroying every single university in Gaza, for uh, desecrating 16 um, uh, cemeteries in Gaza. What will be the accountability? We don't have to project into the future to be asking questions about things that Israel should be accountable for today, that we're seeing with their lying with, with our own eyes. Moreover, and she didn't bring this part up, why is it that there is this incredible double, double standard where the mere accusation from Israel about UNRWA has resulted in us cutting funding along with a bunch of other peer nations that have decimated their funding supply based on just the allegation? When we see how much, how much more evidence do we need? And of course, he prevaricated, and he said, we treat Israel the same way we treat every other country in the world, and we will get accountability which, of course, is just plainly untrue on its face. And that's why I think you're seeing these numbers in polls of how few Americans actually support this ongoing siege. Mm. And don't maybe trust Joe Biden to force his will on a country that is not acting in the interest that he says he wants them to act in. Yeah. Just not... <laughs> we want America to be taken seriously if we're going to be, especially if we're going to be giving them all of our money. More rising right after this. History has been made as Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has been impeached by the House of Representatives. Now, Mayorkas's impeachment represents the first time in more than a century that a member of the cabinet has been impeached. Here's the moment that that happened. Let's watch. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. President Biden responded to the GOP's impeachment, writing, history will not look kindly on House Republicans for their blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public servant in order to play petty political games. Sadly, the same Republicans pushing this baseless impeachment are rejecting bipartisan plans. Secretary Mayorkas and others in my administration have worked hard on to strengthen border security at this very moment, reversing from years of their own demands to pass stronger border bills. Meanwhile, fallout over the scuttled border bill and GOP concerns over foreign funding continues as a spat between Senator John Cornyn and Attorney General Ken Paxton played out online. Responding to a criticism of Cornyn about his vote to send funding to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, Paxton wrote, this is a question all Texans should be asking. Unbelievable that John Cornyn would stay up all night to defend other countries' borders, but not America. Uh, to which he responded, Ken, your criminal defense lawyers are calling you to, or, sorry, are calling to suggest you spend less time pushing Russian propaganda and more time defending longstanding felony charges against you in Houston, as well as ongoing federal grand jury proceedings in San Antonio that will probably result in further criminal charges. Some Republican-on-Republican Republican violence. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the real Republican-on-Republican Republican violence is Republicans opposing what is ultimately a Republican border bill after clamoring for it for months, if not years. And I do think the posture of this, choosing to impeach Mayorkas, uh, when there is a bill pending 
to actually give you so much of the, the border security funding and changes that you've been asking for this entire time is really odd. And we should keep in mind that this impeachment is likely to go nowhere in the Senate. Um, there's not going to be any substantive change it's here. It's really performative. But it's, it's performative. And there is there are a lot of questions here about whether the American public ultimately will care that the work that Congress seems to be able to get done is basically throwing proverbial apples and tomatoes at each other and booing each other and getting in these kind of uh, fisticuffs online instead of passing legislation that materially changes the status quo of the United States, a status quo that increasingly voters, Republicans and Democrats alike, think is untenable with respect to the border. Yeah, I mean, sure, but I think Republicans are listening to their 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 Republican constituents, their their supporters who want this action taken, um, who blame Mayorkas for maybe fair, fairly or unfairly for the situation at the border and wanted action taken, even if it is performative. Um, again, in terms of the bill, you know, it was attached to all of that foreign funding that is clearly unpopular, not just with um, conservative primary voters, but also many Democrats and independents and everyone. So I am, you know, not at all—I was not at all sad to see it go down to defeat. E e frankly, even the border provisions of it, I had a lot of issues with in terms of, I don't know, what we're allocating tons more government funding to that's actually going to solve the problem. But uh, but here we are. It's it's interesting to note the margin there, but, you know, one vote. This is how close things are getting in the House, and they're getting even closer. George Santos' uh, seat replaced by a Democrat. Um, the, the Republican majority in the House razor, razor thin. They can afford, I think, like two defections now on any in any well, situation. Well, the first impeachment vote failed, as I understand tie. it, in part because Steve Scalise was out for cancer treatment. He was back yesterday, yeah. which changed this outcome. But as you point out, now that George Santos' seat is flipped, the margins become even narrower. But, you know, look, if I were the Democrats, to be honest, I, I don't even know how much energy I would give this. I wouldn't even be that upset. Okay, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. It's like a kid showing you their crappy art from school. Like, you did a thing, but it has no relevance in the real world. In the real world, the stakes are that there is, frankly, a draconian right-wing border bill, which I personally am happy isn't passing, just as I'm happy that the funding for Ukraine and We're all happy. Israel isn't We're happy passing. here. But in terms of their political agenda, Republicans who say they want this border—a uh, border bill, they want more security at the border— uh, Republicans, most of which, let's not lose sight of the fact, also support funding for Ukraine and Israel, are basically—they put themselves into a situation, instead of getting two things that they want, I mean, they clamor for with the border bill attached to the, the uh, foreign aid funding bill, are now going to probably maybe be in a situation where it's just a clean funding bill that passes. So how does that benefit I don't know the voter base? Most Republicans—most Republicans do support funding for Israel, elected Republicans, certainly. Yes. I don't know that most of them at this point support Ukraine funding. I, I think um, that they do. I mean, yeah. we, we. I mean, the we, leadership. Mitch McConnell does. Yes, I think we overly. We look. I, I'm, I'm not trying to discredit anybody or take points mm -hmm. away from anybody. But the Freedom Caucus is a minority caucus. It is not representing the interests of broader Republicans and even Republicans who will say out loud because they know the political reality um, that they don't support funding to yeah. Ukraine, people like Ron DeSantis, quite obviously in a world where they weren't getting pressured by the Freedom Caucus because they're in the middle of running a presidential election, would not feel okay, that well, way. They, okay, the Republican political figures, maybe in their heart, deep 
internally would like to fund Ukraine, but if their, you know, if their actual voters don't want it and prevent them from doing so, it's, yeah, most, I most count that as a win. Most Republicans aren't as exposed. I mean, as most Ron Republicans DeSantis in the Senate just the... it passed the funding bill passed with what, like with sixty three, which uh, which was. Yeah. Almost all Democrats, and then and then some Republicans, but it would have been more Republicans voting against yeah, it than voting also, for it. Yeah, but also, if you want something to pass, and it's going to pass without you, you don't have to vote for it. This is what the whole point of the rotating villain theory is. Why would a bunch of Republicans, knowing that it's politically unpopular, stick their necks out to vote for a bill that is going to pass yeah. anyway when they know their constituents are going to be mad? They're just getting cover from Democrats yeah. at this point. So you've got to look at people's well, look, I'm records. Not try, yeah, I'm not trying to overly you know, praise the Republican Party for being non-interventionist. It has violated this policy, as have the Democrats. Democrats time and time again, and it is only the, the voters of the country, the actual people, not political elites, not political people at all, um, who, who manage to exert any pressure on either party to um, not send more of our tax dollars overseas. So, but I, that's, a, that's a good pressure that I think the Republican Party is listening to more than it has historically in the last 25 years, not across the board, not on Israel, you're right. But, Look at what um, happened when we interviewed Vivek Ramaswamy and asked him questions about, would you actually change the flow of aid to Israel? Yeah. Like what? Yeah, I know. On Israel, there hasn't been much and, movement. And Donald Trump, you know, we, we've spoken about this a lot in the last couple of weeks. He has rarely been pinned down on answering the kind of questions about whether or not he would meaningfully change the current funding dynamic on foreign aid if he were president instead of Joe Biden. He worms out of these kinds of questions. He basically defaults to saying things like, well, Russia would never have invaded Ukraine if I were president. Uh, the October 7th would have never have happened if I were president. Okay, well, that's not an answer about what you prospectively plan to do if you are president. And I think that he is being opaque about that because he knows it's a lose-lose situation. Well, I want to know from him now, will he stand for, in the way that Joe Biden continues to stand for, um, Netanyahu not doing substantially what we want him to do with respect to to Gaza and continue to do the funding. Is he going to sit there and take and, and take this level of disrespect for what we want them to do with the money? Or will he perceive it as disrespect because he substantially agrees with what Netanyahu is doing and doesn't see the political risks the way that Biden does? I mean, Biden's base and Trump's base are different. Biden, Trump, you know, Biden, I don't think necessarily has an organic actual disagreement with Benjamin Netanyahu, but he knows he's getting flack for uh, politically. If, if Trump never thought he was getting Muslims in Michigan and needed them to win, then maybe he doesn't give a fig and simply is happy to let uh, Netanyahu do what he wants to do, and he is not disrespected in the least because they're of one mind. Yeah, that could be the case. We need to hear more from Trump to figure out where he stands, for sure. More rising right after this. Ceasefire in Ukraine? Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin's suggestion of just that was rejected by the United States per three Russian sources with knowledge of these discussions, according to Reuters. But a U.S. source denied that there had been any official contact and said the government would not engage in talks unless those talks included Ukraine. Again, that's according to reporting from Reuters. A senior Russian official reportedly said, quote, the contacts with the Americans came to nothing. And another Russian source said the Americans told Moscow they would not discuss a possible ceasefire without the participation of Ukraine. So the detail here, if this did actually take place, was that Vladimir Putin was not going to give up any of the territory he had, required, he had acquired in the course of this war, but was willing to freeze the conflict in the current situation and have no more, no more fighting. 
which would be a good thing to stop having people on both sides of the conflict, but in particular Ukraine, the invaded party, um, continue to have this awful loss of life. Obviously, Zelensky's government wants to retain total control of Ukraine. Um, you know, in an ideal world, no, they were invaded and they should not have to give up any territory. Uh, Russia's invasion was unjustified and has resulted in a lot of suffering and catastrophe. That is all true, but we have to live in reality. And in reality, um, it's just going to be more and more casualties to repel Russia from Ukraine, if that is even possible to do. Our own military advisors doubt that it's possible. Many Ukrainian military experts doubt that it's possible, in which case it seems like a negotiation that stops any further loss of life or, frankly, further loss even of territory in Ukraine. What if, what if Russia continues to be more successful? Um, of course, the Ukrainians should be involved in these talks. I see no reason for them not to be. But if, if Zelensky is still taking a, a maximalist position and then infinitely expecting us to fund it, look, he's going to be out of luck. Now, President Biden has been tweeting over and over and over again condemnation of Republicans for history is watching because you're not going to send more funding. Maybe history is watching if you're not willing to have talks that are going to actually end this war. I mean, the irony is that a ceasefire could be seen as given the Biden administration and Democrats and pro-funding Republicans more of an opportunity to rally the troops and get the funding out the door. I mean, part of what's going on is that, you know, Ukraine has run out of resources and is, ha is genuinely having a really hard time maintaining its standing in this war because it doesn't have the funds, the weaponry required to do so. I saw the New York Times making you know, some positive hay out of a Russian uh, ship that was just sunk by Ukraine. Um, but the, the article also has to acknowledge that that's a rare kind of bright spot in terms of um, Ukraine's successes in this war on land. They're really, really struggling. Yeah. But I think the Congress is actually true, that it's not that having a ceasefire would give Biden and pro-Ukraine um, Congress members an opportunity to try to rally one of these packages through. And the reality is that they think that if the war pauses, if there is a ceasefire, they lose their urgency argument for pushing one of these packages mm -hmm. through, especially now in the middle of this election year, especially with the um, the instincts, the, the, the needs that Trump sees, the political ramifications for Donald Trump and being able to say that he opposes it. I guess. I. In some ways, I think Biden could take a political win if he negotiated an end to this war and, and we no longer had to send them any money. Maybe Democrats wouldn't see it as a win, but a lot of like actual voters would see it that way. It's not about politics. Ukraine yeah. has been a losing I wish it was issue about politics. for <laughs> Biden forever. Same with Israel. He doesn't care that Ukraine is unpopular. He doesn't care that Israel is unpopular. War is never popular, and there are bipartisan majorities of people who want to go to war all the time because it's just not about what the people want. So the, the, the desire to weaken Russia, to have global dominance, to be able to put our weapons where we put them, whether it's Ukraine or it's Israel, is always the motivating factor here. And everything else is just public perception management. And, you know, interestingly, this is a kind of a no-man's zone we're in right now with these Republican holdouts um, being willing to hold and able to hold things up because of the, the close margins um, in both chambers. And I really don't know what's going to happen. I do think that it's tough. It's a tough ceasefire look for Ukrainians after having spent so many human resources, having lost so much life, only to end up with a loss of territory and basically where you were years and years ago, after being misled into thinking that there was possibly 
a better outcome here. And, you know, maybe there is a world in which a certain kind of aid and support, perhaps not from America, but from a global community, could enable them to push Russia out. But the experts seem to be unwilling to articulate a plan in which that is likely, and that suggests to me that it's almost next to an impossibility. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like sunk cost fallacy, right? When you're like, well, we've already spent so much to get to this point, we got to keep spending or else that will be wasted money. No, 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 it's already, it was already wasted. All you can do is waste more money and lives. Again, who are, who are, they're having recruitment problems for their army? Who, who is going yeah. to use these weapons we're, we're giving them? Where are these weapons going to end up, frankly, if then they're killed and more territory is taken? Do those weapons fall into Russians' hands eventually? We've had this whole problem in the Middle East in the past with terrorist groups eventually arming themselves with the supplies we've left behind in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we, you know, there were, there's been so much terrific and horrifying reporting on what ISIS has been able to do with weapons they got from us indirectly. Um, this is this is that situation all over again, and it just seems <laughs> very like it could be. A, I mean, you're right; they they don't see it that way because the elites in both parties are so much more hawkish than than the people. But I think it could be taken as a real victory at a time Biden is sorely needs one, if uh, if he were to think it through a little bit more. Now, Elon Musk also wants to see the United States stop funding Ukraine in its fight against Russia. He wrote on Twitter, I believe, having these boys die for nothing is wrong and needs to stop. Yeah, a sentiment. Again, he's not alone in expressing that. A lot of people are expressing that. So um, I believe we also have a, uh, a video of John oh, yeah. Kirby so we were going to play. Another uh, kind, of, uh, kind of political uh, gaffe has emerged from the Biden administration. The ongoing nature of these two conflicts has exposed how unprincipled some of the positions this country takes toward foreign aid really are. So uh, uh, spokesperson Matt Miller was asked recently about whether or not uh, there was an expectation that Israel pay to rebuild Gaza the same way Spokes Department uh, Spokes, uh, sorry, State Department spokespeople have said that Russia has an obligation to rebuild Ukraine, and you'll never guess, you'll never guess what the answer is. Let's take a look. But does Israel bear any responsibility for paying for the reconstruction of Gaza? So the, or do they get to voice it off on, <coughs> on others? So the situations are not at all. Um, uh, no, but they're are, all, are all, they're, they're all but, conflicts. But, and, but, and, 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 and I realize that World War II is over and, um, and, and the Ukraine war is not over, yeah. but the, neither is the Gaza war. And you're saying that Russia right now has to pay for the damage that it caused in Ukraine. So I'm just wondering, would you say the same, that, that, uh, that, that, that Israel should pay for at least some of the damage that it it, it has caused so, in, in Gaza, even though it's fighting, you know, for what you say is a completely justifiable, or what is a completely justifiable. So what I would say on that matter is that one of the things that we have heard as a, through the Secretary's diplomacy in the region is that there are countries who are ready to step up and help pay for the reconstruction of Gaza. So the, the, the posture of that right there, right, is that um, they're saying, does Israel have a right to rebuild? If this is a righteous war, then why would they be obliged to rebuild Gaza? And so there's this 
there's kind of this talking up out of both sides of your mouth. If Israel is doing everything that it's entitled to do to defend itself, et cetera, why would it not just build, but rebuild, pay to put back up what it has just destroyed? Uh, and so Miller's trying to get around that by saying, well, it wouldn't be necessarily Israel that's paying the money to rebuild Gaza. It would be all of these other countries, thus not casting any kind of implication on the righteousness of Israel causing this destruction in the first place. Mm. Well, I mean, I don't know. We, right, we helped rebuild Europe after right. But World was there War an obligation to do so, or was that just the way the history shook out and a choice to do so? Yeah. The question is, is there an obligation for Israel to do that? And that, the idea that an obligation might only attach if your destruction was in the wrong in the first instance. I see. More rising right after this. Stay with us. Following recent elections, Pakistan has found itself with a hung parliament in which no party commands a majority. Controversial jailed politician, uh, political leader Imran Khan's party declined offers to form a coalition government. According to BBC reporting, two other opposition parties have reached a deal to form a government. The two parties were previously in a coalition that ousted Imran Khan from power in 2022. The fairness of this week's elections are clouded by allegations of rigging. Per analysis from our next guest, the leading party compromised voting conditions in their own favor. Joining us now to weigh in more on these elections and what they mean for the United States is Deputy Director of the Middle East Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Adam Weinstein. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. So what is going on here? Can you tell us, give us more details about the election rigging allegations? Well, um, as uh, some of your uh, listeners may remember, Imran Khan, who leads the PTI party, was removed from power via no confidence vote. Um, and then he uh, became an opposition candidate. Uh, and then he, last May, he was uh, put in jail for various alleged uh, uh, cases of corruption and fraud. And he's remained in jail. And his political party was essentially dismantled. Numerous members of his cabinet and senior party workers were arrested, rearrested, arrested again. And many of them gave statements that they would leave politics altogether. And so it was expected that his political party wouldn't do quite well in these elections, but PTI was very creative. They used uh, deep fakes and uh, authorized AI recordings of Imran Khan and basically campaigned virtually. Since they couldn't campaign in the streets with large gatherings, they did it online. Um, and, and they essentially pulled off an upset in the polls in which it was pretty clear that they, were, they had the lead by a huge margin. Um, but then uh, the election results were delayed for several hours and all of a sudden that margin became much smaller, um, small enough that they didn't have um, enough seats uh, in the, you know, in the parliamentary system of Pakistan uh, to form a government and and and, and um, hold the office of prime minister. And essentially, what seems to be happening, I, mean, I think, it's quite clear, is that uh, the favorite political parties of the military um, are going to form the government. Now we have to remember that Imran Khan used to be a favorite of the military, and PTI used to be a favorite of the military. The Pakistani military changes which political parties it backs. Um, but in this case, um, it's to PTI's disadvantage. So what you're describing seems to be that there is a clear case, uh, despite, you know, very different from the kind of election interference claims that we hear made in the United States about ballot box stuffing or what have you, but a really clear case that the the, the candidate that was overwhelmingly popular and had in fact been sidelined from participating in the election um, 
despite all of that, still managed to win overwhelmingly, but is being kept from having enough votes to uh, govern in the parliamentary system because of the opposition party. Can you help to explain what the political stakes of this are, how Imran Khan managed to pull this off, not just technologically, as you've explained, but what the underlying political issues were that caused him to be popular despite being sidelined and literally imprisoned? Well, I, I think Imran Khan is charismatic. Uh, he, he's, um, he's very good at connecting with Pakistanis. The other parties, such as PPP and PMLN, yes, they do have significant support. They have grassroots support. Um, but they are dynastic parties. And I think younger middle class Pakistanis were, were tired of dynasties. And so Imran Khan appealed to them. Um, and he, he was able to use rhetoric about getting rid of corruption and reforming Pakistan that appealed to the masses. I would argue that um, his party and uh, fell short of some of those goals, but nevertheless, it was central to their message. And I, th I think that was really appealing uh, to the masses. And I also think uh, younger Pakistanis um, are, are tired of what they view as um, interference by the security establishment. And so that was appealing. And, and, and essentially, by arresting him and throwing him in prison, uh, they made him a bit of a martyr. Now, I'll point out that most Pakistani uh, politicians go to prison at some point. Uh, no prime minister has ever finished out their term. Um, mm. Nawaz Sharif has been to prison, as an example, um, and he was in self-imposed exile in, in London. Um, but I, I think in this case, the appeal of Imran Khan is PTI is not a dynastic party and he's a very charismatic politician and he was saying new things. Yeah, it can be, I, I think, difficult to see these more... Um, um, uh, evolving democracies where, right, the leaders are routinely jailed before they finish their terms, and the next, the next party comes in, jails the previous leader, and then when that, when there's another political revolution, even democratically or legitimately, then those people go to jail, and it can be hard to process, you know, everyone is running on corruption, but is it, is it combating corruption, or is it just punishing political enemies, right, because there can often be something to a charge of corruption, like in all cases, but it, then is it just persecuting political enemies? Um, how much of that is is in is at play here? And can maybe you could talk a little bit about the U.S. perspective on what's going on. I know uh, perce the perception that the U.S. Um, intervened is something that Imran Khan um, made a lot of noise about uh, some time ago. You know, in terms of corruption, a lot of politicians in Pakistan are corrupt. Most political parties, I'd say, engage in some level of corruption. I actually think to Imran Khan's credit as an individual, he, he didn't engage in that much corruption. Of course, that's that's just my personal opinion. But members of his party did. Um, and he accepted folks from other parties into his inner, inner, inner political circle who were quite corrupt. So um, PTI is certainly not free from corruption, although I think Imran Khan was, was uh, less corrupt than your average Pakistani politician. Um, in terms of the anti-American angle, uh, essentially Imran Khan alleged that there was a cipher um, and that uh, basically his removal via the no confidence vote was a U.S.-backed regime change conspiracy. And this was uh, due to comments from a, a senior uh, uh, U.S. official, Don Liu, who um, uh, basically said that to allegedly said, um, uh, allegedly said, I guess I should say, to the then uh, Pakistani ambassador to the United States, that relations would probably improve between Pakistan and the United States uh, if, if um, Imran Khan was not prime minister. Now, 
let, let's say that was said. I would argue that maybe that's an inappropriate comment for a U.S. official to make. I don't think that was what prompted the regime change. I think what prompted the the regime change, if we call it that, is that um, Imran Khan had a falling out with the Pakistani military and the uh, the uh, security establishment, uh, yeah. the ISI chief. So that that was, and and then the political opposition saw a opportunity to push a no confidence vote through. But of course. Imran Khan knows that due to the history of U.S. regime change, it was going to be a very persuasive argument to say that this was an anti that this was sorry, that this was an American backed regime change. And I think he also thought it was safer to say that than to take on the military head on, although after a while he did take on the military head on. And I would argue that's one of the reasons he's in prison. Yeah, I mean, the, the real scale of this, I think, was captured in a recent piece by Ryan Grimm at The Intercept, who talks about the fact that Imran Khan, um, famously a cricket star, had the cricket bat as part of his logo, and not only was stripped from the ballot, wasn't able to use that symbol, that, which is relevant for a population where there is a significant percent of them that don't aren't literate, need that icon iconography to know who to vote for, um, that there was all of this polling uh, inter interference, people weren't allowed, uh, 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 you know, Every, every kind of restriction you could imagine. Um, and while we're talking about, you know, laws prohibiting people from passing out water bottles in line at ballot bo boxes in the United States of America, I mean, you're having initial polling results showing uh, one number that changed dramatically over a short period of time after the polling system goes down, real strong evidence of election interference, and still Imran Khan coming out on top, even though there's not enough to have a coalition government. So I, I want to ask you about what the mood of the people on the ground is in the face of all of this seemingly pretty blatant malfeasance and what the next steps are for Pakistanis. Yeah, the removal of the... the uh symbol for uh, the ballots was, uh, you know, a huge blow. As an example, I mean, illiteracy is quite high in Pakistan. I think the figures cited are 40 percent. But a, a, anecdotally, an example is sometimes I'll get in a taxi in Pakistan and I'll ask the driver, hey, put this into your GPS. And I, I realize after a moment that they, they simply don't know how to write. Um, and so I have to put it into my GPS or their GPS and, you know, then they can follow it. Or, so that's just a small example. I, illiteracy is real. Uh, so uh, people use the the electoral symbols to figure out who they're voting for. Um, and that's why news media and uh, uh, TV is so important in Pakistani politics uh, versus uh, written media at times. Um, what does it mean for Pakistanis? Uh, I think the mood is um, the mood is 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 uh, kind of a mood of defeat among PTI supporters, although mm. also righteous anger. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the coalition that's going to form is going to be the, uh, you know, with the PMLN in the lead. And I think that's devastating for PTI supporters. Now, many public intellectuals in Pakistan who are huge critics of Imran Khan and huge critics of PTI actually decried the unfair election results. Although now that the parties they support are coming out more on top, you can you see them backing off a little bit. Um, you know, for the time being in Pakistan, I think what's going to happen is what's always happened. A government's going to form. The world is going to recognize the government. And uh, this issue, will, the can will be kicked down the road a little bit longer. But I think the question is, how long can the status uh, quo remain this way? I mean, you have this youth bulge in Pakistan that's extremely dissatisfied with the status quo, and it's only growing. Uh, it's one of the youngest countries in the world. 
and how long is that youth uh, bulge going to tolerate things? And what is this going to mean if Pakistan needs another IMF bailout or uh, uh, you know things like that? What's it going to mean for Pakistan's economy? Hmm. Adam, thank you so much for joining us to give us all that information. Very helpful, very useful. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, the new CPI inflation report is out, and in a surprise to perhaps no one, your pockets might be feeling a little bit tighter. The price index for all items rose 0.3% over the month of January and 3.1% since January 2024. The Heritage Foundation's E.J. Anthony made these graphs showing consumer staples gone through the roof since January of 2021, basic energy components up 20% or more, foods more expensive too, eggs alone up almost 40% since 2021, and perhaps most damningly, monthly mortgage payments on the medium price home are up 90.4% in the last three years. Joining us now to weigh in on the latest CPI report and the state of the economy is economist at the Heritage Foundation, E.J. Antony. Welcome back to Rising. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me again. So summarize for us, we just read off some statistics, but you know how bad is it right now? Obviously, uh, President Biden and, uh, and White House surrogates have been talking about the improved economic situation or gradually improving economic situation, but of course we're still seeing these prices. Oh, certainly, you know, to describe the situation, I mean, in a word, terrible. Consumers are increasingly having to put things, and we're talking necessities here, not luxuries. They're, they're continually having to put things on credit cards just to make ends meet. More and more Americans are having to take a second or even a third job. Uh, we have over 60% of people living paycheck to paycheck, and folks are just drowning right now in credit card debt, well over $1.1 trillion. I mean, it has gotten so bad, not just with credit card balances, but also credit card interest rates, that families are paying over $200 billion a year just in interest on those credit cards. That's not paying down the credit cards. You're not putting anything towards the balance. You're just paying the interest. So things have certainly gotten out of hand for a lot of American families. They're, they're basically just digging themselves into a hole at this point. To what do you attribute these uh, interest rate rises with respect to mortgages, the cost of eggs being higher and other kinds of consumer goods? What, what's going on here? Well, the biggest culprit right now is just the sheer size of government spending. You know, when, when the government spent, borrowed, and, and printed trillions upon trillions of dollars it didn't have, that devalued the dollar. So everything priced in dollars, which is everything that we buy, obviously, is going to go up in price because it takes more dollars to buy what you used to buy before with, with fewer dollars. But on top of that, you've also had a lot of bad policies out of this administration that have really hamstrung uh, domestic energy. And as a consequence of that, it has driven up energy prices. Now, energy is a bit of a unique component within the economy because it affects everything we do and everything we buy. So as a consequence, when energy prices go up in the long run, everything else starts going up as well. And these factors have combined to, to create the catastrophe, frankly, that we have today. I mean, let's call it what it is. It is a cost of living crisis. In, in terms of things like mortgages, uh, why, why have they gotten so expensive? Obviously, you have the, the price of the home itself that has gone up tremendously, but you also have the interest rates, which have gone up very high because those were raised belatedly to deal with 40-year high inflation. So now, if you're a prospective home buyer, not only do you have 
to deal with a, a home price that has gone up dramatically, but an interest rate that has in many cases tripled or quadrupled compared to where it was three years ago. So both of those things, again, have combined to create this terrible situation where you could be paying 90% more for the exact same house. Help me understand this because as you mentioned, and as we said on the read, egg prices are up from just a year ago. So obviously they did come down after the pandemic. And so the allegation that the reason some of these consumer goods have high prices being connected to the bailouts of the pandemic era don't seem to track, or at least don't seem to explain in the fluctuation. They haven't been permanently up. They're up from just last year. Uh, CNN reported that, as you pointed out, egg prices rose 8.5% compared to the month before in January, and they attribute the cause to a highly contagious, deadly avian flu that's wreaked havoc in the egg market, and also point to the fact that there have been some allegations that these legitimate troubles in the market are leading to price gouging. Of course, the egg industry had to pay $17.7 million in damages for price gouging they were uh, accused of doing in the early 2000s. Do you credit any of those explanations? No, not not really for a couple of reasons. You know, everyone on team transitory for inflation, uh, they were saying that, oh, this is all just from supply chain problems. Well, all those supply chain problems have been resolved, and yet prices have not come down. You would expect not only for inflation to come down, but for prices to come down as well if all of the factors that were allegedly causing those price increases have gone away. And we have a lot of different indices that show that supply chains on average are right back to where they were before the pandemic, and yet prices are not. On the business front, this idea that, that businesses uh, en masse are somehow uh, gouging consumers, that doesn't even pass the smell test. Businesses right now have seen price, or businesses right now, I should say, have prices that are 20% higher than they were in January of 2021, which is exactly the same as the increase in consumer prices. In other words, businesses are simply passing along to consumers all of the cost increases that they are already paying. And that's one of the reasons why, although corporate profits are at record highs right now, if you adjust for inflation, they're not. In fact, they've actually fallen for several quarters. I, I just want to drill down this a little bit, I specifically asked to what do you attribute the fact that prices did come down after the pandemic. Egg prices were down, and now they've gone back up. And it's really difficult for me to understand how you can attribute that to a bailout if you can't account for the fact that there have been variations in, in these prices. Also, it's not just, you, you said they don't think the price gouging passes the smell test, but it did pass the federal jury test insofar as that a federal jury found that these uh, manufacturers, these egg producers, were in fact guilty and had to pay a multi-million dollar settlement for proven price gouging. So how do you respond? Well, I would love to see that proof. You know, this wouldn't be the first time that that a jury was wrong. But in, in terms of the, the spending, you know, it's not as if government spending these bailouts from 2020 all of a sudden stopped after 2020. What this administration has done is simply replace uh, COVID emergency spending with other spending. They have taken deficits that were, again, supposedly for an emergency and institutionalized them. So now multi-trillion dollar deficits are the norm. So it's not as if the inflationary impulse only existed in 2020 or even into 2021. It exists to this day. We have a treasury that continues to borrow well over a trillion dollars a year. They'll probably be close 
to $2 trillion by the time this fiscal year is over. Thinking of things like eggs specifically, though, to your question, you know, there are all kinds of fluctuations that happen within that market, but within all other food markets as well. It's not uncommon that you will have one month where prices are up, another month where prices are down. And that's why we look at the long-term trend. And the long-term trend for not just food, but prices in general over the last three years has been absolutely terrible. It is going nowhere but up. What's the number one most immediate thing the Biden administration could do to actually bring down some of these prices? It's a great question. And the very clear answer is to stop the excessive spending. We have to get that under control because that really is the first uh, link in the chain, so to speak. If if you cut the spending, then you can cut the borrowing, which relieves the pressure on the Federal Reserve to print the money to pay for all those unfunded deficits. So that means that you can immediately start bringing down inflation because you're no longer devaluing the dollar day after day. On top of that, it also reduces these violent changes in interest rates that we have seen over the last three years, which again would help uh, help alleviate the pressure, for example, in the housing market and would help reduce a lot of financing costs for consumers on things like credit cards. Hmm. I heard you make the case uh, just now today that Biden should have spent less than the American people and that Trump should have spent less than the American people in the, in the, um, the checks that were given out to prevent people from falling into destitution during the pandemic. And you've also argued that despite record profits from uh, billionaire CEOs, that they, in fact, aren't profiting as much as numbers would show and that there should be some lifting of their, their uh, burden. It does seem like all of your advice is pointing in one direction, which is that working class and poor people who are struggling to afford these consumer goods should not be bailed out, but that by making it easier for profits to flow freely, freely to the top, that that is going to have a trickle-down effect that is going to bring egg prices down, and that also we shouldn't be concerned about proven cases of egg price gouging by these uh, CEOs. And additionally, uh, there shouldn't be any um, uh, further spending to help, let's say, cap prices or use antitrust to explore some of these food monopolies. What do you say to folks who say, this seems like it's all a very pro 1%, pro corporate agenda. Where is the bailout ever, that's ever going to happen for regular people in this country? Respectfully, I'm not sure you've heard anything that I've said, because that seems like a completely different characterization than, than the things that, that I've actually said during this interview. But in, in terms of, of which, which part specifically, folks, though? People which, with lower and, and middle, uh, lower and middle income stratas. What should we be doing for those people? We need to remember inflation hits them the hardest. People who have high incomes, people who have high net wealth, they tend to have salaries which appreciate well during times of fast inflation. People who have a lot of assets, it doesn't matter if those are equities or if those are homes, whatever the case may be, those assets tend to appreciate in price very well with inflation. And so those folks tend to do just fine. But the people who really get crushed are the ones who don't have assets. Who are they? They tend to be lower and middle income, the, the working class folks. They also tend to have incomes which adjust very, very slowly to inflation. That's especially true for retirees, by the way, who are on fixed incomes. And so the thing that you can do to help those people the most is to keep inflation low. Yes, but EJ, e e this is this is this is the issue. The Heritage Foundation, for example, advocates historically for um, sales taxes 
taxes that disproportionately affect people who buy things, which is poor and working class and middle class people, as opposed to wealth and wealth taxes that affect the wealthiest people in the United States of America, right? Over and over again, the policies that get advocated, they're pitched as, well, this is easier, this is a flat tax, this applies equally to everyone, without paying attention to the fact, as you just pointed out, that different kinds of people in different classes earn their money very differently. And so you're absolutely right that the price gouging, that the costs of higher eggs, whether it's because of something like price gouging, whether it's because of something like the avian flu, which is largely unavoidable, um, is going to disproportionately affect, affect, affect poor and working people. But it does seem like there's a pattern of saying that you shouldn't bail people out, the poor and working people out when there's a crisis. shouldn't bail anyone out. Should not bail out the people. But that's not what he said. He, he, well, I, no, he pushed, wait a minute, well, excuse, he pushed back, wait a minute. Excuse me, minute. When, when did I even use the word bail out? I, I'm using the word, not you. But you specifically okay, made well then reference— please, But please don't put words in my mouth and uh, yeah. say that I'm saying to bail uh, anyone I, out because I have not, not said I'm, that. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. And if I can get to this point, I'm specifically pointing to the fact that you alluded to high, record high corporate profits. Remember, billionaires doubled their wealth during the pandemic, doubled their wealth during the pandemic. Record high corporate profits right now, you brought up into this conversation, and I invite you to clarify, that you don't think that those numbers are accurate and that they're, in fact, not profiting as much as they look, look like they're profiting. And the implication seemed to be that something needed to be done about that because they're being too limited and not profiting as much as they should. Am I wrong? Please do respond. I, 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 again, you apparently have not respectfully, you apparently have not listened to 90% of what I have said. I do not doubt the accuracy of record corporate profits. Those things are a matter of the public record. Anyone can look up the, the income statements of these corporations, for example, and see the numbers in black and white. That's not a question. The question is the real value of these corporate profits. So just as the average American family today has seen a paycheck grow pretty substantially, over $200 in terms of their weekly paycheck over the last three years. What that paycheck can actually buy has gone down. It's gone down by about $85. And so we are seeing similar trends for a lot of corporations where if you just look at the dollars and cents, the nominal amount, their profits are up. But if you look at what those profits can actually buy, they are not necessarily up. For some businesses, absolutely they have increased. But for others, they are down and down substantially. Yeah, yeah. small businesses right. in particular are really struggling in large part because the consumer base that patronizes small businesses, you know, people in your community, restaurants and the like that struggled so much in the pandemic, they don't have a customer base that has enough money and liquidity to be able to spend on those kinds of goods anymore. And so crushing the poor and the working class ultimately does hurt the small business owner. And of course, the same effects are not true of big multinational corporations. Thank you so much for joining us today and explaining your worldview, AJ. EJ's. Thank you for having me. CNN has announced the network is promoting reporter Natasha Bertrand to correspondent where she will cover politics and national security. Now, Bertrand has long covered the national security beat and was the first to report on the intelligence community's infamous letter decrying the Hunter Biden laptop story as Russian disinformation back in 2020. And in 2021, friend of the show Glenn Greenwald wrote of Bertrand, CNN's new reporter Natasha Bertrand is a deranged conspiracy theorist and scandal-plagued CIA propagandist, adding in the U.S. corporate media, the surest way to advance is to loyally spread lies and deceit from the U.S. security state. Bertrand is just the latest example. 
Meanwhile, an apparent bloodbath at CBS News this week saw over 800 employees laid off, including veteran on-air correspondent Catherine Herridge. Herridge, who previously worked for Fox News, is currently embroiled in a First Amendment case. She refused to comply with the federal judge's order to reveal sources to her reporting on a Chinese-American immigration case. Herridge's final reporting for CBS News was on special counsel Robert Hur's finding on President Biden's alleged mishandling of classified documents, leading some to speculate that that is the cause of her being let go, whether or not that's substantial. Sure. So let's start with Bertrand. Um, you saw Glenn Greenwald's previous tweet really you know, holding back mild-mannered as he typically <laughs> is. But in fact, when she worked for Politico, uh, Natasha Bertrand was the author of the of the, the Politico story, which kicked off the whole the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinfo um, story with the headline, Hunter Biden story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel office officials say. Now, of course, that headline is inaccurate because if you read the letter closely, they do not say that the laptop is Russian disinformation. They say it resembles Russian disinformation. It bears the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. So this was a case where, now, I think even their conclusions there were too strong, mm. but the media framing of the letter took a much more made a much more strident claim because of how Natasha Bertrand framed that article. We now know that it is not Russian disinformation that has been disproven definitively. This headline remains like this. There's, there's no update to this story that I can tell. Um, so, you know, look, I don't mean to pick on a person who I'm sure has done some fine reporting on other issues, but um, it, it does seem like and again, this was a, a very important matter in the cam yeah. campaign. Joe Biden, in a, his debate with Trump, was able to call on the letter and this story to dismiss accusations against Hunter Biden on this basis. So it was a major political issue, and the framing of it was totally dead wrong, and it's frankly on her, or at least, you know, okay, maybe somebody else wrote the, wrote the headline, and she should have said, oh, no, that's wrong, and fixed it quickly. The headline remains under her byline. I mean, does it feel to you that she's being rewarded for exactly this kind of pro-Russiagate behavior? Right. That's what people, that's what people wonder. Uh, I mean, the, you know, how bought into the whole Russiagate narrative um, many mainstream commentators um, were on CNN and MSNBC making it all about that story, even as many of the claims weakened over time for, for how active Russian disinformation was or how vital it was to the 2016 election. Um, as for CBS, losing 800 employees is a massive, massive hit. Um, Catherine Herridge is someone who was at Fox, as you said, um, as, is a, I would say, well-respected national security reporter. Um, I was seeing a lot of tweets um, in her support from at least some ideological uh, diversity and is involved in this important First Amendment case where a judge is trying to compel her to give up uh, her source in a in a case about a Chinese immigrant who I believe was a I believe was a faculty member somewhere a professor and her reporting alleged that this person had ties that were too close to the Chinese government and the judge wants her to force her to reveal how she got that information mm. and uh, she's refused and I believe Fox is still paying her legal bills but she then moved to CBS and. Um, and is now is now being let go. The last tweet being about the Robert Her, the her last story being about the Robert Her um, kind of taking shots gratuitously at Biden's age. You know, gratuitously if you think so, <laughs> maybe not, um, may, or maybe not gratuitous. But I, I don't know. People well, are debating what they are. Yeah, they they may be accurate. That's the word, by the way, that uh, Kamala Harris kept using at the press conference where she was pushing back, and in a weird kind of Twitter dust up. Um, Simone Sanders, who was previously um, 
Biden's press secretary and then became Kamala's press secretary and is now a yeah. pundit over at MSNBC, was critiquing her use of the word gratuitously, saying that it was too— It was um, gratuitous? Too, too, <laughs> yes. It was, it was too big a word, basically, and that she should speak more plainly for the American public. Wow. And then she got a weird amount of flack from the K-High. for It's it was weird. a weird and unnecessary Twitter dust-up. I'm I, a folksy Midwesterner, and I use the word gratuitous. <laughs> yeah, I, I so. don't really know what um, Simone's angle was on that one. But uh, to the plot is that Catherine Herridge is getting right now, Michael Schellenberger, a friend of the show, uh, tweeted out yesterday that CBS News was one of the most respected names in journalism. That's no longer the case. Today it fired Catherine Herridge, who was facing financial ruin and even prison for protecting her sources. Herridge is a hero. CBS execs have behaved cowardly. Shame on them. And, you know, the Herridge story is one aspect of this, but, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people being laid off um, at Paramount Global, 800 people on Tuesday is an enormous uh, yeah. blow to a media organization. So the, the choices about who to cut, as well as the choices of who to promote um, and who's getting rewarded in this environment, I do think speak louder, more loudly than they might in another another kind of just regular kind of promotion and firing cycle. 20 people being laid off at, at CBS, according to the Wall Street Journal, including Heritage, is quite a blow to any newsroom. Yeah. And, you know, this is coming in the wake of layoffs in a lot of other corners of the media. Um, we talked about the L.A. Times. Uh, there have been so many others. It really is a bad time in the media industry in, in a lot of—not everywhere. Um, New York Times still doing very well for itself. Um, we still have our jobs, I think. So not everyone, but uh, it's, a, it's a difficult media environment um, in the— you know, I, I've, I explain this to a lot of people, I think, uh, or, you know, just friends of mine or family who ask about, you know, who, who see headlines like everybody being like, like, what's going on? What's happened to the media industry? And the simple answer is Facebook. <laughs> people don't know that social media through the aughts was the—Facebook uh, in particular was the distri distribution model for, um, for digital non-video content, and that that came to an abrupt end when Facebook decided that— too much news in your feed was bad for some—I mean, they were yelled at a lot for having too much news in the feed, so I don't—I'm not, like, blaming them necessarily for going in a different direction or feeling like they should go in a different direction, but it reduced that, as a result of that, traffic to news websites reduced dramatically across the board. Well, also, it's not just the traffic to the website. It's the fact that if it's cheaper in— more advantageous for advertisers just to pay Facebook for the Directly. ads instead of placing the ads in the newspapers, then that's a huge revenue source that is lost out by these publications. And we're seeing it change the nature of journalism and I think exacerbating the crisis because what's happening is that you're getting less and less original reporting. And so you're getting more talking head punity coverage that I think is frankly less informative and more divisive than the straight news used to be. And that's driving even more people away from the news. And fewer and fewer people are invested in doing actual reporting. So people like David Sirota at The Lever or uh, Jordan Cheriton over at Status Quo, who are still hiring people and buying flights to send them to uh, East Palestine, Ohio, and talk to folks on the ground, 
or who want to do actual research and reporting into what's going on at Boeing or following up on some of the stock market um, allegations of stock market market mismanagement in Congress. I mean, that is so few and far between. It is a lot easier. And, you know, we're all guilty of this. It is a lot easier to comment on something somebody said in public or tweeted or said on a podcast. But what kind of investigative stories are we missing out on? What kind of corruption are we not learning about anymore because no one's willing to invest in real news? Yeah, I mean, the model for investigative reporting is changing, and obviously there's a lot of challenges with that. I agree. Um, I mean, a kind of, you know, paying for for, uh, subscribers and Patreon-type things and Substack, you know, a lot of people we have on the show, like Lee Fong and Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, are doing good in—they have commentary, but also with a lot of— um, FOIAs and getting original documents um, through a lot of you know, people at The Intercept, people at Reason, where I also work, and it's, you know, it's, it's reader-funded or, or, yeah. or crowdsource-funded or subscribers or donors, and I think that's going to be the model for that sure, kind of thing going forward. that's no substitute for a multi-billion dollar organization like The New York Times that can have permanent journalists residing in locations all across the country and across the world who speak the language, who can intimately understand a community, and who can get real scoops and make news and not just report on the news that's being put in front of us. There's no substitute for that. And local political news is basically just not covered anymore, which makes everyone have a national focus and glom onto national issue areas that wouldn't necessarily have been organic issue areas for them altogether. So you can live in a city where crime is down and be concerned about crime because you have projected uh, yourself onto what's going on in you know, San Francisco or Chicago or what have you. Um, and it is changing people's political preferences and polarizing the public in ways that I'm not sure are entirely productive um, when you don't have your own kind of organic interest base that relates to you. I think you're open to a greater manipulation, frankly, by a national news cycle that might have um, interest other than simply informing you of what's going on in your community. Yeah. I should say this is primarily a problem for producers of content through print and digital, but written articles, video continuing to take off. I mean, obviously on YouTube, that's where our show is based. People, you know, obviously people are, you know, cutting cable and everything, but people do still watch um, local television, um, you know, that's the video is is the model for I think so much but, of these. Things you know, these big forward. corporations own all the local television channels, and they're all getting the same news. So I'm sure everyone's yeah. seen that dystopian um, mis, mis, um, match, matchup mashup of all of the local news reporters across the country reading the exact same script with the exact same cadence across like dozens yeah. and dozens of channels. You know, is that really local news at that point, or is it just your local figurehead? saying the national news in a way that makes you feel like it's intimate to you. I mean, that's that's what's so dystopian about it. Mm. All right, more rising right after this. So Rolling Stone is not welcoming Jon Stewart back to The Daily Show. They published an article this week uh, complaining, is Jon Stewart still the right person to host The Daily Show? The comedy vet has returned, obviously, to the desk that he left in 2015 this evening, but his both sides are equally bad approach may not translate to 2024. Again, that's according to Rolling Stone. One ex-user wrote, Jon Stewart is no longer up to the task. He's incapable of an original idea, relied on lazy tropes that appeal more to the white dude bro demographic, and most importantly, has joined the DC press corps in their inability to see the forest for the trees, a fail 
at The Daily Show. Journalist Aaron Rupar wrote on X, John Stewart still has it in terms of being funny and entertaining, but the political content of this monologue is basically the New York Times op-ed page in TV form. Both sides are not, in fact, equally bad. So, like, it, it, it's going to hurt your mind a little bit to try to understand what Rupar is even trying to say. Rupar is a liberal who thinks that, Don, that the New York Times, a deeply liberal paper, is too hard right. on Joe Biden. Yes. Okay, and they all are using this refrain. The Rolling Stone uses this refrain. You hear Rupar saying it there. Keith Olbermann, predictably, was big but oh, mad God. about this. He got, Make it the, another this, nine years? <laughs> Keith Olbermann has also called on the Hill to fire you and I, yeah, so well, we're in good company. He's, he's consistent, to say the least. Um, but he also The worst <laughs> person in the world! <laughs> but the refrain he keeps echoing, that everybody is echoing, is he calls him a both-siderist fraud. Both sides. Yes. The Rolling Stone um, claims that his both-sides-are-equally-bad approach may not translate to 2024. Yeah. I want to be really clear about this. That's a lie. Yeah, that is not, not what think, he said in that no. monologue. He goes out of his way to claim, this, to say that Trump is worse, and flips the whole ageism thing on its head in the monologue by saying, yes, how bad it is to have this old octogenarian who can't remember his words. Let's take a look. And then plays videos of Donald Trump. So he really is making what his position is clear, perhaps to the detriment of the public, but never mind, that Trump is worse than Biden. But he specifically argues that if you agree that Trump is a threat to this democracy, Democrats need to be putting forward their best player. And that person is not Joe Biden. No. He is advocating for an outcome that best enables Democrats to meet Donald Trump. What Democratic, the Democratic establishment can't accept is that that person increasingly is unlikely to be Joe Biden. Yeah. So The View responded to this. Alyssa Farah welcomed him back, but then there was some dissatisfaction about just what you were saying, that there would be any criticism whatsoever of Joe Biden. Vote, vote for Biden or your kid's going to be killed by Putin's army is basically where this kind of red scare argument, this Russiagate argument has gotten us to. Look, when you're a daytime TV host, and you say, "I hate to bring up, uh, I hate to bring up Hitler," but and your own audience goes, mm. "Maybe you have lost touch with public sentiment." Democrats really want this age issues to be a Republican uh, creation that is being embraced by a bored media environment that's struggling for stories, and that it's a big nothing burger. But after treating it that way for years, instead of reckoning with the problem, they're now being confronted with the fact that they're just months out from an election and the polls are what they are. This is an organic feeling that's shared by most Americans and most Democrats that Biden is not the ideal choice in large part because he's too old. And I was listening to Pod Save America last night to see their take on this. They did a new episode about the Biden age issue and they're all, you know, former um, Obama, Biden, White House staffers, they have their own pol uh, political ideology and are very supportive of the president. But even they're like, Democrats have to stop pretending like this is some kind of gotcha that they can yeah. ignore. They're falling into the Hillary 2016 trap, which is to pretend that every criticism is in bad faith and not take the opportunity to address it in ways that could actually be remedial. Talk to someone outside the bubble. Talk to someone outside, like, a highly partisan liberal media, democratic environment, talk to real people, Democrats. Democrats. Real people who are not, but who are not, you know, at the top of 
the political elite or are you know extremely affluent and extremely plugged in talk to normal folks out in the swing states again who might have voted for Biden last time they will tell you they are very concerned about his age this is not an idea that Fox News tricked people into adopting whatsoever it is a view that exists in the country because people see him on TV periodically and they are worried they are worried that he increasingly cannot finish his sentences that he is getting confused more often yes. that he looks visibly older than he did four years ago. And it is it is a concern. It is at the top of everybody's mind. And he's going to continue. And, and the press, frankly, is now asking him about it a lot, as they should. So it's going to it's going to increase as an issue as the salience of it will will rise by the media yeah. finally giving it the you know the day in court it deserves. He's not getting younger. Yeah. Polls so show... one thing he can't change. <laughs> he, could, he could change his policies. He could change a lot of things. He cannot stop himself from getting older. Yeah, so to be specific, 86% uh, of voters as of a poll from this week think that Biden is too old to serve. That includes 73% of Democrats who think that Biden is too old to serve. 73% of Democrats. Now, only 35% of Republicans think Trump is too old to serve. Yeah. And you can be mad at that, and you can scream at the heavens and say, oh, but they're the same age as we just right. um, saw AOC do in a in a different clip in a different yeah. segment, but it doesn't matter. You're, you're just screaming into the fiction because it, the age thing is also not really literally about chronological age. It's not Bernie's literally about old. the number. It's about Noam Chomsky's old, right. but other people have their wits about them right. and aren't seen as frail. And this this is important. Too old to serve and unable to lead. That's the real critique that's being. Yeah. Uh, levied there. And the the whole idea that, well, it doesn't really matter because he has, has advisors, he's just a figurehead. But like, okay, tease that out a little bit. If the job of the president is really to be the front man, the chief communications officer for an agenda that is actually handled by experts and advisors, well, that actually makes it look even worse because he is very, if he is not capable of mm -hmm. doing, if the main part of the role is communicating the, the platform and the message and what's going on and, and doing it on TV and in other interviews and other forms and on debate stages, that's the part he's least, he's least, obviously least good at now. You can make the argument that the thinking's still all there, um, but if, if that doesn't matter because his main job is to be an effective communicator, it's, it's, that looks even worse. And also, what does that mean about your Trump threat to democracy argument? If he's just a figurehead, right. if that job really is not so empowered, if it's really about who's around Trump as opposed to Trump himself, then is that an argument that everyone's overblowing the threat that he presents to Great democracy? Point. Fantastic point. Well, that does it for us today on Rising. We will, of course, be back here tomorrow. Enjoy your Valentine's Day, and please be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and all that business so you never miss any of our content. We would not want you to go a single day without us if you can avoid it. <laughs> all right. We're available anywhere you listen to podcasts. As you know, take care. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.